Welcome to Addiction in Simple Terms. My name is Dr. Julian Keats. I'm a specialist in addiction medicine with over 10 years' experience assessing and treating drug and alcohol-related problems. And in this podcast, I explain some of the important ideas in addiction to help you make sense of your experiences and hopefully make some changes for the better in your life. This is episode nine. In episodes one to five, I spoke about why people use drugs, the progression from experimental use through to ongoing regular use, and how some people end up stuck in a cycle of addiction. In episode six, I gave an overview of the various responses to drug use at a society level and an introduction to the treatment of addiction and dependence. In episode seven, I discussed detoxification and withdrawal management, and in episode eight, relapse prevention. This episode is about rehab. As always, I'm going to use the term drugs and drug use to refer to all drugs of addiction. This includes illicit and illegal drugs, prescription or pharmaceutical drugs, and alcohol, because as I'm sure you know, alcohol is a drug too. Let's make a start. I've titled this episode Rehab with a question mark on purpose. I think everybody's heard the term because it comes up so often in popular culture, on television, in movies, in the gossip columns of print and web media, and of course in that Amy Winehouse song, They Tried to Make Me Go to Rehab. You hear the phrase, they've gone away to rehab, or they just got out of rehab, all the time it seems in plain old everyday conversation, or that this celebrity or that sports hero has been checked into rehab. But what exactly does it mean? Concerned family members or other healthcare providers will often ask me, should he or she go to rehab? Or patients themselves will say, I think maybe I need to go to rehab. But when you scratch the surface, more often than not, they actually have no clear idea what they even mean themselves when they say rehab. The first thing I do in these situations is try to demystify what we're talking about by the term rehab and what's actually involved. If by the end of this episode you can come away with a clearer picture in your head when you hear someone use the term rehab, then between us we've done a good job and I'll be happy that I've done something useful. The simplest description I can give you is that a rehab is a place where a person goes to stay or live in for a prolonged period, typically anywhere from a few months to maybe 6 to 12 months, in a drug-free group environment where there's various types of support or treatment to help them make a good start on the road to recovery from addiction and drug-related problems. Sometimes these places are called residential rehabilitation centres or services, that's where the term rehab comes from, and the word residential is in there to signify that you go there and live in, you sleep in the facility, eat in the facility, shower in the facility, and so on. Sometimes they're called a therapeutic community, which alludes to the fact that there's a group of people there or a community of people there engaging in some sort of therapy. Then there's a whole bunch of other less specific terms that may be used or proprietary or trade names that they might go by. They might call themselves a long-term recovery centre or a residential treatment house, an alcohol and drug retreat or an addiction retreat. I know of one called a transformation centre. I've heard some called health and wellness resorts or wellbeing centres. Sometimes they name themselves after a church or charity, sometimes after a founder or a rich donor who got them started, think the Betty Ford Centre, or others after the setting where they're located, such as Ocean Recovery or the Alpine Clinic or the Hills Centre. And then they might just be called the Sanctuary, the Cabin 
or the farm. As a rough rule of thumb, something I've noticed is that the more non-specific the name, the more exclusive or expensive they seem to be. And those that don't specifically mention alcohol or drugs or addiction might also cater to mental health recovery too. My focus in this episode is on alcohol and drug specific residential rehabs. I'm going to use the term rehab because that's the common usage term that most people are familiar with. Because I've lived and worked in Australia pretty much my whole life, what I have to say will probably have an Australian tinge to it, but I think it will still help your understanding wherever you're listening. But the trickiest part of trying to cover this topic is that when it comes to rehabs, there are many, many variations on the theme because rehabs come in all sorts of different flavours and there can be differences or variations at every step. I'll try and point these out along the way so you get an idea without getting too far off the course from the things that are generally pretty common to most rehabs, give or take. Now, time for a couple of disclaimers. First, in my professional career, I've only worked in and provided care to patients at one rehab, though I've referred patients to and had dealings with a few more and visited several more. And I've never actually been a patient or a resident in an alcohol and drug rehab. I don't have what's known as lived experience. So necessarily, a lot of what you'll hear in this episode is gleaned from what I've learned or heard about through my reading, in books and medical literature as well as on the internet, and by talking with others, patients, staff and service providers. And because the patient population I work with are mostly lower income or unemployed, and often quite disadvantaged and marginalised, I don't have any real experience of the high-end, exclusive and expensive luxury rehabs. If you're a celebrity or a millionaire, thank you very much for listening to my little podcast, but I'm not sure if what I say here will fit with what your life looks like. And second disclaimer, you'll notice that sometimes I use the term patient in this episode. That's because I'm a doctor and I'm used to seeing patients, having doctor-patient confidentiality or practising patient-centred care. But I'm well aware that in some settings, what I call patients are actually called residents or clients or consumers, or maybe just people who use alcohol and drugs or a person receiving care. So from here on in, I'm going to try to use the term residents mostly. But forgive me if I use the word patient occasionally, and please don't read too much into it. Before I talk about how a rehab works, let me talk a little bit about who runs rehabs. I guess in some countries around the world, there are government-run rehabs, where the facility is owned and run by the state and the workers who staff it are government employees, but I'm not familiar with that sort of system or which country has them. In Australia, rehabs are either run by NGOs, which stands for Non-Government Organisations, or as private sector businesses. Non-Government Organisations, or NGOs, are not-for-profit community-based organisations that are independent of local, state or international governments, although they may receive some of their funding from government grants. Any money they take in gets spent on carrying out the day-to-day work of the organisation, including staff wages, building and infrastructure costs and the like. Many not-for-profit NGOs are also recognised as charities, which gives them special tax breaks, although not all of them are. Private rehabs are more like a typical business. They aim to run an efficient and profitable business and then can decide to either distribute profits to their owners or shareholders or reinvest them in the business. The actual people who staff the rehab and that you interact with day to day are often people who themselves have been through addiction and are now in stable recovery 
so they'll often have some experience of what you've been going through. There may also be some nurses, social workers, psychologists, and even doctors, depending on which rehab you're at, but they're probably more common at the private rehabs. This brings us to the question of how do you as an individual pay for your stay at rehab, or how does your loved one pay for their stay at rehab? Well, firstly, as far as I know, all rehabs will let you pay out of pocket if you can afford it. This can be more expensive than you'd think. Rehab is not cheap. There's the cost of accommodation, food, wages, and any activities that might incur a cost to the rehab to provide. You have to remember that the rehab is paying for the purchase and upkeep of buildings, vehicles, televisions, computers, beds, tables, chairs, couches, washing machines, etc., as well as things like electricity, water, gas, petrol, and internet connections. If you're staying at a rehab for three to six months or more, this adds up to thousands of dollars. If it's a private rehab you're going to, then they'll also have a markup so that they make a profit. In some cases, private health insurance might pay some of the cost of rehab, but rarely does it pay at all. It depends on what insurance you have and which rehab you're going to. And you have to have private health insurance in the first place, which itself costs money. So for people with money and health insurance, that's how you're going to pay. You might have the luxury of choosing one of those exclusive or expensive private rehabs, and often they'll try to offer you a bed pretty quick. But what about if you don't have money, which is, of course, the case for many people seeking rehab? What if you're unemployed and your only income is unemployment support payments from the government? Or if you can't work because of long-term illness or injury and you're on a disability support payment? Well, in Australia, you should still be able to attend rehab because the NGO not-for-profit rehabs will usually have an arrangement where you can agree to pay a proportion of your unemployment or disability support payment directly to the rehab. This means you don't need to pay any upfront cash payment. If this is the way your rehab stay is going to be funded, then you'll need to be applying to one of the NGO rehabs that does this. And you'll probably also find that there's a waiting list for a bed, because there's a lot of demand out there, but only a limited number of NGO rehab beds. So that's the first step in finding a rehab that'll match your needs. Deciding, do I have savings and health insurance to pay for a private rehab, or do I need a rehab that takes a proportion of my government support payment? Then you need to find the contact details of a few rehabs. A simple Google search may be the place to start these days. Or you can speak with any of your local drug and alcohol services of any sort. They should be able to point you in the right direction and give you some phone numbers. Detoxification centres in particular often have a relationship with a number of nearby rehabs, so they should be able to help. And if you get the number to one rehab and call them, you can probably ask them to suggest some other rehabs for you to shop around before making a decision. Once you have the contact details, the next step is giving a few rehabs a call to chat with them and fill them out and see what suits you. You'll need to talk about how you pay, as I've mentioned. You'll need to think about location. Are you after a rehab that's somewhere nearby? so that family can visit when there's visiting times? Or are you intentionally looking to go away to rehab? There are private rehabs all over the world if you can afford them, and many are in exotic getaway holiday locations. But if you're attending an NGO rehab, they might prioritise people from the local area further up the waiting list. And you'll need to think about the differing aspects each rehab has to offer. This is the different flavours I've mentioned. Some are run by religious charities and have a religious aspect. Some might be non-smoking, as in tobacco-free, while others will allow you to smoke in certain areas at certain times. 
Some might restrict access to mobile phones or only allow supervised phone calls to families on certain days early in your stay. Some allow scheduled in-person family visits, others don't. Some are female only, some are male only, some are mixed gender. A few will accept mothers and children up to a certain age, others won't. Most don't accept couples at the same time. So if you and your partner both need rehab, you'll probably have to go one after the other if you're going to the same place, or just go to different rehabs if you both need to do it at the same time. Some rehabs are particularly oriented to the cultural needs of Indigenous populations, such as Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia. Some will accept you on certain medications but not others, so that needs to be checked. And many rehabs may not be comfortable with unstable, complex medical or psychiatric conditions or advanced pregnancy, so you might need to get other conditions seen to and stabilised before going to rehab. You'll need to discuss all these things with the various rehabs you speak to and find the one that best matches your needs. Now, many rehabs will accept self-referrals, meaning you can just call up and put yourself on the waiting list. But some may want a letter from your GP or family doctor. Others might only accept referrals from drug and alcohol services or detoxification centres, and so require you to go through these services first. Again, you'll find this out when you ring. Once you've found a rehab that sounds right for you, they'll usually want to do some sort of pre-assessment. This is often a phone assessment, but if you're close enough, they may ask you to come in for a face-to-face assessment. This is where they ask you about your background, your physical and mental health, your patterns of drug use, and your goals for the rehab stay. Then they'll put you on the waiting list and either call you regularly or ask you to call them regularly, sometimes once a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, until a bed becomes available. All of this process, the initial phone call, the phone assessment, and working your way to the top of the waiting list, can take several weeks and sometimes months, so you'll need to persevere and stay in contact. Now, to properly engage in the rehab program, you'll need to have detoxified from your drug use and got through the period of major withdrawal symptoms first. That's because most rehabs are not set up to manage physically unwell people, and the whole rehab idea involves active participation in the program. So being unable to take part because of withdrawal symptoms or market irritability or lethargy and fatigue in your first week or so off drugs is not going to cut it. Some rehabs will have their own in-house detox unit, maybe in another building or at another site, but it's often the case that you have to go to another service first, some sort of specialist drug and alcohol detoxification and withdrawal management facility, and the rehab will hold your bed and expect you when you've come out the other side of detox. Most detox facilities will have some familiarity with the nearby rehabs and be able to give your rehab a call and notify them when you arrive for detox and let the rehab know your expected discharge date so they can be ready to accept you. Now we've reached the stage of arriving at the front door of the rehab. When you finally do arrive, the first thing to expect is some sort of orientation and settling in period and you'll be shown where your bed is. You might have a single room, or you might be in a shared room with two to four other occupants of the same sex. You may have your own ensuite bathroom facilities, or there may be a shared shower and toilet facilities with one set for males and one for females. There's usually a shared kitchen and a communal dining area where everyone eats together, and as a resident you can expect to be a part of the roster for meal planning and preparation, cooking and cleaning up afterwards. There'll be a laundry for you to wash and dry clothes and sheets, and maybe a roster for that too. There'll be some shared common rooms or recreation rooms, 
where you can sit and read, watch TV, maybe play ping pong or eight ball, or just chill on the couch in your downtime. There'll probably be a similar outdoor area where you can sit, get some fresh air and maybe go for a short walk on the grounds, or do some Tai Chi or yoga, or kick a football around. And in Australia, there's always going to be an outdoor barbecue area. In the rehabs where you're allowed to smoke tobacco, there'll also be a designated outdoor smoking area. As far as therapy areas, there'll be a larger group room where group meetings are held and some smaller consult or interview rooms where you can get one-on-one support or counselling with some privacy. There may also be a nurse's office and a medication room because typically you don't keep any medications in your own room but instead they're stored in one central spot and given out daily. Other spaces you might see will be a corner or few tables somewhere with some computers and an internet connection and maybe a corner where there's tea and coffee facilities and a water cooler. And of course, there'll be offices for the staff and administration that work at the rehab, and these areas are typically off-limits to residents. Just for interest's sake, in the private rehabs, there might be all sorts of other things. There might be a fully equipped gym with a personal trainer. There might be a swimming pool or spa and sauna. There might be a personal misuse. There might be a chef and room service and all sorts of other things. The luxury private rehabs can be more like a five-star international resort, but as we've covered earlier, they also come with a similar price tag, so are out of reach for most of us and not really what I'm focusing on here. Alright, so we've set the scene. Let's now have a look at how the community actually runs. The therapeutic community model of rehab means that there are going to be a bunch of other residents at the rehab who have also experienced problems with addiction and they're all going to be at various different stages of their own stay in rehab. For it all to work smoothly, there'll be a bunch of ground rules and expectations, or rights and responsibilities, that everyone needs to abide by. The days are usually scheduled so there's a routine of being up and out of bed and ready for breakfast, then some time for housekeeping, before spending a good portion of the day attending the structured therapeutic program of group support meetings, education sessions, skills training, and one-on-one counselling or support. Some rehabs will also have some journaling or a guidebook or some other activities that you work through at your own pace to help you reflect on your experiences and your growth and recovery. There'll also be some free time and some exercise and recreational activities, maybe at the end of the day or in the evenings. On the weekends, there may be scheduled family visits where your loved ones can come and spend time with you or later in your stay, take you out for a few hours. As you progress through rehab and reach various goals and time points, you take on greater responsibility for yourself and your own self-care, but you also become a more senior resident and a role model. You'll start to play a part in providing guidance and support for new residents and in organising the community's activities as a whole, such as rostering the kitchen and housekeeping duties and planning the recreational activities. And eventually, you may start to have leave time to go out alone to the shops, the bank or the post office, to visit family at home, or to attend to education and pre-employment training, all in preparation for when you finish rehab and reintegrate into the real world outside. So we've covered how you get to rehab, what the place looks like, and how things run from day to day. Now I'll touch on some of the aspects that are really the core benefits and main challenges of going to rehab. Some of the main benefits of residential rehab, at least as I see it, 
are as follows, and I've numbered these just to keep things clear. 1. You get time and space away from the temptations of ongoing drug use. More than just a week or two off like you might get in detox, but rather a few months of being drug-free. It often takes this long for you to really fully recover physically, for your body to heal, your sleep to improve, and your energy levels to get back to a point where you no longer feel exhausted all the time. 2. There's a healthy daily routine of sleep, nutrition, housekeeping, exercise, and meaningful productive activity. This is often lost in the fog of addiction, but resetting healthy routines is vital to looking after yourself long-term after you leave rehab. 3. Basic living skills such as meal planning, cooking, cleaning, laundry, and even budgeting are all useful rehearsal for the humdrum of normal life. 4. The group environment living and interacting with other residents and staff, though sometimes initially daunting, is really valuable because it gives you a chance to learn and practice much-needed social skills, including interpersonal communication, teamwork, and conflict resolution. It also means you can learn from observing others and hearing about what has and hasn't worked for them on the path to recovery. And there's a certain solidarity you get from knowing you're not the only one who's faced challenges and you're not the only one finding your way to recovery. 5. The Structured Therapeutic Program teaches you in-depth knowledge and provides insight about addiction, mental health, recovery, well-being and self-care. This includes relapse prevention work and participating in group therapy, sometimes in a 12-step model such as Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, that can provide linkages to continued support after you leave rehab. 6. There's assistance to access healthcare, such as GP visits, psychologists, psychiatrists, and maybe addiction medicine specialists, either on-site or through off-site appointments at healthcare facilities outside the rehab. This is something that you might have put off when you're in the throes of addiction, or may have never even considered or had the opportunity to engage with. 7. Being drug-free, clear-headed, and in a stable situation always helps when you're trying to make a healthy reconnection with family and loved ones, and some rehabs can help you re-establish contact with children if you're a parent who's been off the scene for a while. And eight, there are linkages to legal aid, social housing services, education, income support providers, and employment and training services, with some of these services even having a specific community liaison worker who comes out to visit the rehab on a regular basis to help people complete paperwork and navigate the various pathways and processes required. You can see there are actually many beneficial effects of being in rehab, not all of which are obvious if you've never had anyone explain them before. But to be fair, we do also have to think about some of the hurdles, challenges and drawbacks. Again, I've numbered these just for clarity. So first challenge, there's a bit of a process to get into rehab. The phoning around, getting the initial assessment done, keeping in contact until you work your way to the top of the waiting list, and sometimes having to also organise your detox at another service to coincide with just before your rehab bed becomes available. Two, the cost, either out of pocket or signing over a fair proportion of your government support payment. Not having to pay up front is actually a good thing. It makes it easier to access rehab without savings. But it can be a challenge if you also have to pay rent to keep the accommodation you'll return to afterwards, or if you're paying off a car or other debts. So talk to the rehab to see what can be negotiated. Three, there's the being away from home thing. If you're caring for an elderly parent or a child, or if you live alone and have pets, 
someone is going to need to take care of them while you're away. Hopefully you have at least one trusted friend or relative who can help while you're away trying to be a better you. So have a think and ask around for support. Four, if you're employed, then taking three or six months off to go to residential rehab may not be an easy thing to ask your boss. Now, if you're in serious addiction, chances are you're not the best employee you could be. And going to rehab means you'll come back and be that better employee. But not all workplaces will be able to hold your job. So there's a frank and honest discussion that needs to be had there. Five, as I've explained before, there's a real benefit to the variety of new people you meet in rehab and the opportunity to practice your social skills. But as in any group, there may also be clashes. You may find some personalities you don't get along with and there'll be disagreements and maybe even conflict from time to time. You need to be ready for this and open-minded about finding new, constructive ways to deal with issues that come up. You also need to remain focused on your recovery and not be drawn into relapsing if there's someone else at the rehab who's not doing so well and trying to lead you into temptation. And though I've listed this as one of the challenges, it's actually one of the core skills that you'll need to learn if you're going to avoid relapse in the real world long term. 6. Going away to rehab is a somewhat artificial situation. You may do well while you're in a drug-free setting where there's no temptation, and hopefully you'll learn new skills. But if after rehab you come back to the same temptations, the same social circles, and the same stresses that you were living in when you were in addiction, then there's a real risk you'll slip back into old habits and unhealthy coping behaviours. Back into addiction, in other words. You'll need to give some real thought about the people, places and activities you'll return to after rehab. And if it's obvious they're going to cause you to relapse, maybe you need to consider a fresh start elsewhere when you come out with new goals and new skills. And seven, one special thing I need to mention. If you haven't used drugs or alcohol for a few months while you've been in rehab, your tolerance, the amount of drug you can handle in one go, will have decreased. If you come out and relapse and take your usual amount, it may now be too much for you and cause you to overdose. This is especially the case with opioids like heroin, fentanyl, oxycontin and methadone. Any self-respecting rehab should teach you about this high risk of overdose if you relapse, and if you do find yourself in the situation of using again after more than a week or two off, please start with a lower amount as a precaution. If you've made it this far, well done, because this is my longest episode yet. But the decision to go to rehab is a big commitment, so I think it's worthwhile to go into a bit more detail. I can tell you that you're now probably more informed about residential rehab than most people, so you'll be able to make more informed choices around what's right for you. In my next episode, I'm thinking I might make a bit of a sideways step, and rather than talking directly about addiction, I might do an episode about stress and how that affects your health, and just touch on its connection to drug use and addiction. So I'd like to invite you to listen in to that on the next episode of Addiction in Simple Terms.